Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us, for tuning in at Oak City Church. We're glad you're here. Hope you're doing well. I am. Um, before we get started this morning, I want to follow up on some comments I made last week about the election um, this past week. And so here's what I want to say. If you, man, uh, long week, if you, are, if you are in like just utter despair over, uh, you know, the results of the election, or on the other hand, if you are just giddy, you know, gleeful over what happened, if you've lost sleep, let's say, either way, I would suggest that it's, it's probably become an idol to you and, and gotten out of its proper place. I think, you know, you can be excited or you can be concerned based on your perspective or your leanings, uh, but if it gets much past that, then you have to ask yourself some questions. And I think I've been pretty consistent in that message over time and in the weekly. Um, I linked a few articles that I think are really helpful to give us perspective on uh, what's been going on and what is um, going to go on. Um, But Jesus is Lord, and he's on his throne, and we should all keep that in mind. And the articles that I linked really get to how, as a church, our opportunity is to show that there's something more important and more powerful than our political system, and that we can be unified in spite of having uh, differing views about it. I've been reading Daniel in my personal reading Um, this past week, and I would highly recommend it. Um, It's a great read. It's an entertaining read, uh, but also it deals with uh, a lot of different leaders uh, that come and go and how God is at work behind the scenes and how he's in control. And so spend some time reading Daniel and then spend some time um, seeking the Lord as it comes to what's going on in our country uh, right now. So here's my word about that. It is um, Orphan Sunday. It's a, a Sunday that uh, churches across America recognize uh, the importance of the fatherless to the heart of our, our Heavenly Father. And so we've done that for the past several years. We've taken this Sunday and talked about what Scripture says about God's heart um, for the fatherless. And we're doing that again this year. And this year I've asked a friend of mine to come and talk um, uh, a pastor named John Fouché, who a lot of you have met before. John has preached here before. John has trained our leaders. And um, the, the, the topic of orphan care is really personal to John. And you're going to learn a bit about his story today and um, how God called he and his family into that. And I'm confident um, that it's going to inspire you and hopeful that it's going to challenge you, and that God may use today's message to start writing some some new stories. So, John Fouché. John, thanks. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yes, it has been uh, a day that I've already gotten a message on orphan care that I didn't expect. About three hours ago, I was talking to somebody I'd only met a couple times before. It was somebody that basically... Uh, was serving on a nonprofit board with me, and I wanted to know more of her story. So I asked her, why do you care so much about this nonprofit, which is an adult foster care facility in Michigan? And she said, nobody ever cared for me. 
And I said, what do you mean? She said, I grew up in an orphanage. This was three hours ago. And, uh, and I said, like, tell me a little bit about that. So she did. And, and I said, did anybody, can you look back at the time that really let you know that you were loved, that you were cared for, uh, that mentored you, that brought you to the place where you are today? And she said, nobody, no one, nobody did that. She said, the only message I got is the only thing you're going to be good for is a prostitute. And I said, so, like, what happened? And she said, when I was 13, I started really looking into this cult that I had been exposed to. And I started to note some discrepancies between what their writings were and also what they borrowed sometimes from, which was the Bible. There was two messages there. And I started to see this. And finally, I went to a friend and I said, I just want to know what the Bible says. Do you know any church out there that, knows, that tells you what the Bible says? And uh, her friend said, yes. And so she went that week to church, and she said to me, At th- that first Sunday was the first time I had really heard that I had a father, and he spoke to me what I most needed to hear. In my opinion, when I think about what the father shares uh, about his son, I think a lot of us really need to hear this. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, verse 5, God says these words over Jesus and to his disciples. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And he's talking to his disciples. He's basically saying in our vernacular today, I love you, I'm proud of you, and you've got a voice. And I think that's what kids need to hear. And as I was talking with Jill, that was what she started to come in contact with, was that she had a heavenly father. You know, many of us grew up with parents, a mom or dad or both. And we had our parents telling us this. But there are many people that didn't. There are many people that today will come and share their story, and they tell us how much all of us long to hear the voice Uh, that resonates in our heart that is really the Heavenly Father's voice of what we long to hear, and that's what we receive in our Scripture. Today I want to talk to you about orphans and family. Orphans and family. You may know this, but we have an orphan crisis. If you took all the single orphans, that is a child that has lost either their mom or their father, and you put them all in one place, you put them in Mexico because that's the population of all the single orphans in the world, 140 million. If you got all the double orphans lost, both their mom and their dad, and you put them all in one place, you'd put them in North and South Carolina, because that's the population of how many double orphans there are in the world. 16 million orphans, double orphans in the world. You know, when you look at the states, We've got 430,000 kids in the foster care system. We've got 111,000 kids waiting today to be adopted. And in Wake County, where we are, we uh, know and see every week that, uh, that we have more than 500 kids in the foster care system, but we have less than 200 homes in which to place those kids in. We have an orphan crisis uh, today. 
You know, it, I really did not, just to be really honest, I really didn't care that much until about uh, 12 years ago. Uh, I want to show you a picture of my family. This is my family today, and now I look at family really, really different. Here's uh, our family. We have an older son, an older daughter, and my daughter-in-law that's sitting between them here in the picture. Uh, 24 and 20, my older son, his wife, live in Nashville, Tennessee. My 20-year-old is going to App State and Boone. But you can see here on the ends are two now adopted boys. Wesley, we got through private adoption. Aiden, we got through the foster care system and ultimately led to an adoption. When I really look at this, I'm baffled because I just think about how different this was than I ever envisioned my family to be. After we had had our older two, which I call now Family 1.0, we really kind of had a good thing going. And my wife wanted more kids, but I didn't. And honestly, for about eight years there, I just liked more and more what we had. We were the traditional nuclear family, a boy and a girl, married, happy marriage. Uh, There was four of us. If you think about it, the world's built for four. Like, everybody could fit in a booth, you know? Everybody could fit in a sedan. It just kind of rolls well. Until about 2008, I was preaching a sermon during the 2008 uh, election on what the Bible has to say about politics, which was something I also swore I would never do. And something happened to me in the middle of while I was preaching. God spoke to me. Now, I'm not one of those kind of guys that say, you know, God spoke to me kind of guy. I don't do that very often. There's only been a handful of times where I was unmistakable that it was the voice of God. What I had just done is made the case that due to the sanctity of human life, all Christians should be engaged uh, uh, politically. And I was just using an illustration. Then I used a quote from William Wilberforce in the House of Parliament on ending, ending the slave trade and that we ought to be all involved in racial reconciliation. And as soon as I read that quote, at the end of that, God said to me, you're not doing a thing about this. And so, not too long afterwards, I opened up my Bible and said, I've always thought of the things that God says about kids, and certainly about adoption as kind of spiritual things, but I never really saw them as practical things. But very much, it is practical. My mind went to James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, he's basically saying, you're not supposed to just go to church. You're supposed to do something about it. In verse 22 of James chapter 1, but he, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And that's what we can often do is we can hear the word, but then we don't do anything about it. It's true that faith comes by faith alone, but the faith that is never alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Let me say that again that faith comes by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. Either said by Calvin or Luther, nobody really seems to know. But he says here, this is what faith does. It works. And one illustration he uses right after this is this. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, 
and to keep oneself unstained by the world. He's basically saying you need to do something. You need to be like Christ, unstained by the world, bringing the love that's not double-minded, thinking about you and God, but thinking single-minded about bringing redemption to the earth by empowering the powerless. That's what he's saying. He's saying do something. The word visit here really struck out to me this time. It's the same root word in the original language here of the word pastor. And here I was, a pastor, preaching and living my life the way I wanted, defining my family the way I wanted it to be. And yet, here I was, unwilling to pass, pastor, to visit the orphan. Unwilling to really look beyond what God would have us to do. And so we ultimately adopted in 2010, and then we started foster care in 2012, which led to our youngest adoption a couple years after that. Now, I typically get the question, I mean, that's good for you, but what should my family do? Or even, I don't have a family, what should I do? And I want to talk about what you should do in a minute, but first, I want to just challenge the question. What do you mean when you say, my family? Let's talk about family, okay? What do you mean when you say, my family? My gut is you don't mean your tribe or your clan. Everybody with the same last name as you. That was, historically speaking, before colonial times, the majority of cultures in the majority of places, you were raised by a village. That's how they would have answered that question of what my family was way back when. From about 1750 to 1900, it changed, especially in the States, to the extended family. In 1800, 90% of Americans lived with their extended family. They had a family farm or a family business. And they really, if you ask them, what is family? They would have said, family is extended. It's my aunt, it's my uncle, it's my grandfather, my grandmother, my niece, my mom, my dad, my sibling. It would be all together. But that changed. And what we mean by my family, part of us, Today, we mean what became a new definition of family in the 1900s, what we call the nuclear family, you know, married with 2.5 kids. Well, the nuclear family is really different now than it was when it was, those stats were at their height in the 1950s and 60s. In 1960, for example, three out of four kids grew up in a family where there were two parents, and it was their first marriage. Today, that's half. In African-American families today, it's a quarter. One out of four kids growing up with parents that it's their first marriage. Things have really changed. If you do any Google search, it's going to become really clear that the nuclear family has been in decline. And yet, when you ask, what do you mean when you say family, Half of us say, uh, I think of my spouse, I think of my kids, or I think of the ones I don't have. I think of my family. But this is a new definition, the nuclear family. And we shoot for this kind of 1950s, 1960s, you know, I think of leave it to beaver ideal. And we, even as we're working that out, we realize this is nice, but it's nowhere near what I thought it would be. 
Others of us, though, don't really think of that. You know, we're single moms. We don't, we're singles. Uh, we may not necessarily be in the same circumstance. And we are, have a looser definition of families, whatever you make it out to be. Now, I'm not just saying that's totally something that's outside the church or a mindset. For sure, the church, especially a more conservative church, tends to think in terms of nuclear family as my family. But we need to realize here that this happens to us. I was telling Jeff earlier this week that last Friday I was meeting with the trusted advisor. And she said, family, when you say family, what do you mean by my family? And I said, I was thinking about family 1.0 when there was just four of us. And I was like, you know, peace and happiness and doing things together. And she looked at me and said, you need a new definition of family. And she was absolutely right. You know, our orphan crisis, our family crisis, has everything to do with our idol of happiness and peace. It has everything to do with what has started out as a pursuit of happiness, but now has become a right that we think we have to happiness. David Brooks wrote an article in The Atlantic in March, and he was talking about the changing family structures of the 1900s going from extended to nuclear. He said this, We'd made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. And in the last 150 years, that's been especially true. And I think in general that almost every family is under-resourced, that parents are under-resourced. So, for example, in 1960, 5% of kids were born outside of marriage, but today it's 40%. Now, obviously, the material poor are the ones that are going to suffer from this the most. But if you think about it, they honestly did never fully pivoted to nuclear. It is in the material poor that we usually find a stronger tribe or neighborhood and structure that goes with it. We find extended families. You know, there are very few African Americans that will adopt, but it's because they're already taking care of a niece or nephew or um, maybe a grandchild if they're in a poor area of the world. Uh, they're already doing it. They see this. And the uh, poor communities never fully moved towards nuclear. Our son's birth mom wanted, said, we, I want my son to grow up in a white family. And what she did was say, I want to get him out of the cycle of poverty, and I want to put him in a place where there are resources. And he's gotten it. I mean, we pay for school. If there's ever a problem, we can pay for a tutor. If there's ever a need, we can continue to develop any skills, any hobbies. We basically, as white-collar families, when we left the rural farms and moved into the cities and left our extended families, those that were a little bit more well-to-do, we basically bought the social structure back that we were missing. We buy it back with our sports teams so that somebody else is helping to invest in our kids. We buy it with all of our extracurricular. We give them things to do. We give them education. Where, uh, it goes on and on and on. We bought support systems. But there's one thing that I see most often that truly has been lost. Back 150 years ago, we lost apprenticeship. 
And the nuclear family has never been good at training up a child in the way he or she should go. They've never had this way of giving practical, tangible skills in a community, a village, or extended family to be able to instill in them what they need to know what their unique voice or unique gifts are. And I see this all the time. A lot of times I'll ask under my present work, who, uh, well, among your parents, if you had them, did they say to you, you've got a gift? Or did they say to you, you've got a voice? Or did they say to you, I want to work with you to help to understand your talents and skills and ability? And four out of five of my clients will say, nothing. I got nothing. And yet it's one of the three things that we most need to hear from our Heavenly Father. And so it's no wonder why we have problems with kids that go to college, they get good degrees, they get good education, but then they land in jobs totally disengaged, unclear what they are supposed to do vocationally. I think all parents are really under-resourced when you look historically. But the question is, what does family mean? What does it mean? I will say that today, my view of family has really changed. I saw this video a couple of years ago, and it just reminded me of people that follow God, what kind of stories God creates. And so I'd like you to take a minute and just consider what is family, and what do these uh, families, what, what do they, this family present as what family is? My favorite quote of all time was our furnace repair man comes into the house, stops dead in his tracks, and says, this looks like some kind of United Nations meeting. I was born in Bangkok. Bangalore, India. Connecticut. And I was born in Romania. Ethiopia. Which is in Africa. In China. <laughs> Sharon is the gas pedal, and I am the brakes. Over and over she'll say, I found this child who needs X and Y and Z, and all we'd have to do is fly over the ocean, get funding, connect this dot to here, and it'd be done. We're such victims of our culture because our culture tells us your kids have to look perfect and be in all the perfect schools, and you can't do that with a big family, but if you just concentrate on what's important, the rest will follow. People discouraged us. They thought we were going to ruin our lives by taking all these special kids, and they said, you don't know what to do. And it's true that we had no experience, and we didn't really know how to raise them. But you, you see what happens with unconditional love. You give a person unconditional love, and they, they blossom. I feel like having these kids has really helped us find our life, find our meaning, find our purpose. It took me decades to figure this out, but 
There's no physical thing that you can buy that's actually going to give you true peace and happiness. And the pure joy that will come from a, a rescue and a ransom of a child's life is probably the most satisfying thing you can imagine. We talk about adoption. We tell them they're adopted and we kind of tell them, you know, being born into a family, you don't even decide that. It kind of happens biologically, but when you're adopted, your parents looked out at the whole world and picked you. You think that they don't really know the gravity of them being rescued or saved. Then you'll see them in an external setting, like one of them is in front of 300 people last Friday night, and he tells people that he probably wouldn't be alive if he hadn't been adopted by his family. Those are the, like the goosebump moments when you go, he's got it. at the time when I was born, um, when, you were, when you were born with a, a deformity, quote, quote, it, um, it was considered a curse by God. I was um, kind of distanced and not treated right and kind of not really getting any care that a normal baby should, which is why when I was one and a half years old, I weighed nine pounds. It was rough in the, in the first year of my life, but I lived. But no matter where you were before, it's like where you can be now, your past doesn't define that. This family has proven that. It's just like you have a dying boy from Romania or starving kids from Africa, and you bring them to a, a place where they can be, I guess, human to the fullest, and that, that's, that's a generous generous thing. Family is everything. Family's fun! <laughs> Interesting. His family is just people you can be a fool around and they'll still love you. Awesome. No, should I do the Dennehy face? Family is something that I can count on. Family is adoption. Okay, so I think that last statement really is, has a bite to it, that family is adoption. Here's the question, not just what you mean by family, what does the God mean by family? And no doubt, 
Adoption is a key characteristic of the family. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing and he's talking about how we were all spiritual orphans, alienated from the Father. And he says this, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, lest you think this is just a spiritual illustration that doesn't have any practical resources, jump down to what Jeff read a couple weeks ago. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That our adoption is not yet complete, and it will be complete when God comes and gives us new bodies. He cares about the physical. This is not supposed to be something that you're supposed to apply spiritually, as I used to think. But you didn't see adoption and adoptive families or orphan care or foster care system is like messy and I don't know. No, the Scripture is presenting all the physical and the spiritual, the whole person here as he's talking about this here. Family is adoption. And part of being a family is we get an inheritance. We get an inheritance. And that inheritance is of the Spirit of God, the very breath of God that comes into us, and we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, you may have heard that before. A lot of times it's been described, Abba, Father, is like Papa or Daddy. It's affection. Well, a lot of scholars do not think so. They think it's more of a primal scream for help. I had a friend of mine adopt overseas two different kids, and he described his experience and how this scripture really resonated with him and his wife. His name is Rob Barrett. He said this, With both of our adoptions, we experienced the same things in terms of absolute silence when we visited the orphanage. And in the first few weeks as well with our new son or daughter. It's really strange to go into a place with tons of little kids and hear nothing. When we were in China back in June, we heard nothing during the entire orphanage visit. We went to the wing where our daughter lived and to the room where she stayed most of the time. In the middle of the room, there were 15 or so cribs filled with two or three-year-old children just sitting there making absolutely no sounds. Lily made no sounds until we were with her for about three weeks at home. This was the same for True uh, with Judson as well. Each of them would sit alone in a room without crying or speaking. They had weeks where they could have called out and we would have come to help, but they didn't. I imagine they were just so used to not being heard that they didn't believe that they actually could cry and that that would make a difference. And then after the third week, the loudest screaming you could imagine with both Judson and Lily was the same. Full-on, save me, screaming. Katie and I would run into the room, pick up our kiddos, hold them, sing over them, pray over them, and rock them back to sleep. What hit me about a month into the cries was Judson, I think. 
an insight into the adoption we receive, the spirit that is given, so that when we cry, we cry, Abba, Father. I think what Judson and Lily began to realize in coming home is that there is someone who hears, who cares, and can actually do something about it. And that is a beautiful picture of what adoption is. It's family. Family is adoption. You know, a lot of us can mourn over what we did not get from our parents, and it would probably be wise to do. But I believe that our parents are really the hands and feet of the Father. They come, they run to us, they pick us up, they hold us. They, with their hands, feed us, they care for us, and they point us to the Heavenly Father, which is the voice that we were longing for in the first place. And that is what God is calling us to do with the orphan. Family is adoption. Family is also love. Now, I don't mean love like what we often now describe as what I would say, you for me. Like, for example, the pursuit of Mr. Right. What do you want? You want Mr. Right for you. Like, this is about you serving me. <laughs> and a, that's a little overstatement. But with love, we often mean self-expression and personal fulfillment these days. But listen, obviously, you raise a child that way, and you're going to functionally orphan that child to expect them to serve you. On the other hand, what we know from Scripture is that love is me for you. And we see it with Christ. I die so that you could live. Or with Christ, he died so that we could live. He was orphaned so that we could be adopted. Here's Christ. Christ is the one that was sent from the Father. Truly a biological Son of God and adopted by a human father. And he came and lived the perfect life hearing from the perfect father that he was loved that he was cared for and valued, and that he had a voice, a mission, a news for this world. And yet, when he was on the cross, he said in a primal scream, Father, why have you forsaken me? And we find out later the reason why is so that he could adopt us. Christ took our place on the cross, and he took the alienation, the dividing wall, the hostility, and broke it down to bring us to God. That believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, you will be adopted. You are adopted if you believe. So family is also love. Family is also a gift. And I think one of my problems as a dad has tried to decide who's in and who's out of our family. Either like physically, whether or not we add more children through adoption or foster care or not, or like, you know, emotionally or having an attitude of, you're, kid, you're driving me nuts. So you're kind of right now outside the good graces of dad or not. Basically what I'm doing is what our first father, human father did, Adam, is trying to be like God. Define family. Define what truly is happy, peaceful, what serves me. And that's another way to functionally orphan a child, is to be like God. Well, if you're a Christian, your family's not defined by you. It's not defined by your parents, or by your blood, or by your race. Family 
is defined by the Heavenly Father. And God defines it as adoption by grace. It's a gift. And so I wouldn't just challenge you when you say, when I ask you, what do you mean by family, that you come back and say, who defines my family? Who defines what family I'm in? Is it you or is it your Heavenly Father? You know, God's family does include tribes. It does include the extended family. It does include the nuclear family. He created it all, and he did it intentionally with design. But in the Scriptures, the family of God are those people in those groups, but are centered around the Heavenly Father giving praise to Him. And I pray that when we are singing with all nations, all tribes and tongues, that we will sing Psalm 80. Uh, 68, verse 4 through the first part of 6. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exult before Him. Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows is God in His holy habitation. God brings those that are solitary, those that are alone, into a home. And that home is really the church. And so the question is not, what should my family do? Or I don't have a family, what should I do? The question is, what does our Heavenly Father say that we, our family, should do? And the answer is, a very I've already said, to do something. To do something. So let's talk about that. First, I would encourage you to open the Bible to hear God's voice. This is really simple. What you could do, open the Bible to hear God's voice. You might all of a sudden start be struck with like, gosh, I've been really living for myself. I've been really defining family according to my own terms or a, a momentary cultural definition. I've been defining it uh, about my happiness and my peace over the orphan. And so if that's the case, then we need to change, right? To repent. Some of us have been prioritizing our happiness or whether or not we're like engaged in the family during the coronavirus season over God's family. We need to repent of that. We need to open the Word, though, and be formed by God and His Word over us. You know, when I was talking to Jill three hours ago, uh, she said in that church where she was introduced to the Bible, she said it was remarkable People would, like, answer my questions by opening the Bible. She said, you know, every time I'd ask a question, they said, well, the Bible says this. Or over here. She said and a couple times I asked a couple really hard questions. And they said, well, we don't know, but here's what this says here, and here's what we says here, and this is what we know from God's Word. And she said, all of a sudden, I realized I have a Heavenly Father. I have a Father that loves me and embraces me, and cares for me. She said, I got all kinds of tapes still to this day, but I got new tapes from God. I love that. You, she got, was, got a voice. She got value. She got delight. She got identity. And it's interesting. And I said, well, so why are you on this nonprofit board? And she said, it is my mission to care for children. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I mean, for example, 
I've got five kids, biological. I adopted two, and we did foster care too. I said, oh, really, you did some foster care kids? She said, yeah, 30. I was like, holy cow, you know, 30 kids. She said, my voice is to open my scripture in front of children in the church and to introduce them to the father that I wish somebody would have introduced me to in the first 13 years of life. Now, let me just say, when we say do something, we're not talking about starting out with adopting 12 international disabled kids from all over the world. You know, we're not talking, we're not, I'm not encouraging you to go foster care 30 kids. You couldn't do it if you tried at least cold turkey. <laughs> but what I'm encouraging you to do is open your Bible with your church family in front of kids. You know, every week you have these in-home lesson plans going home. This is a great opportunity to do what very few people are doing with kids this day. Take the time to really be attentive to them and explain to them the voice of the Father. You could do that with neighborhood kids or a single mom that may be in the family. There's all kinds of creative ways for you to do this. And this is actually a prime time to do it because kids are getting a lot of screens and they're not getting nearly as much one-on-one -on -one care that they need. Now, you could also care for the orphan. And we want to encourage you, if you're interested in any of this, to reach out to Becca Taylor. Here's her contact info. She helps uh, you guys connect to orphan care on a very practical way. There's several ways. Uh, there's several things you could see on the Oak City website, too. You could partner with Pharaoh's Daughter, which is a way of taking care of kids whose mom is incarcerated. And you could do this for a season. This nonprofit will also keep on walking with this mom and this child after she is released from prison, if that happens. You could inquire about Global Hope India. All of this, Becca Taylor is very familiar with. Now, you could also inquire with the state in foster care or uh, to look at adoption. Becca can put you and come with that. Or support a family that does. Support somebody. Give them some gift cards. Go do some babysitting. Tell them to take a break, and it's all on you. Have a great time with kids. Invest in them while you give the parents a break. You could support somebody else that does. All this is a beautiful way to do something. Now, there's another thing you could do is pray. Now, we're going to list on this page here at the bottom this PDF that uh, comes from Bethany Christian Services. November is National Adoption Month, and this is a way to take you through some guided prayer every day of the month to pray for orphans, to pray for kids in the foster care system, to pray for um, God to be able to place and bring these kids into families, to, to play for, pray for those existing families or they're just starting out, that you can be able to support them. And this is another way you could do it. So this is the big idea, though, to do something. We are adopted children. You know what adopted children do is they go out to the streets and they find other orphans to bring them in and tell them about the father that will take care of them. That's what we do. That's who we are. That is integrity. Now, obviously, you're going you're gonna to know this is not going to be just 
a piece of cake. It is a lot of work to care for a child. It's a lot of work to care for any child, much less one that has never heard the voice of the Heavenly Father before. You really need the Spirit of God to work. And as you're pouring out yourself, saying through sacrificial love, me for you, again and again, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to come to the end of your limitations. But in those moments, you need to remember that you're being reparented too. That God is the one that is removing those old tapes in you and taking his voice and saying, I've got you. I'm with you. I'm your advocate. I know where this is going. Keep dying. I will keep bringing you life to pour my spirit into you. Keep crying out for me and keep pointing them to me. You know, as adopted kids, that's what we're supposed to do. Hit the streets. Bring in the orphans so that God, the Father, could give the fatherless a home. You know, of all the things I looked up and the stats, the one that really struck with me the most that I loved was this one. Do you know the number of caring adults it takes to make a lifelong impact of an orphan? It's one. I'd like to pray that you would be open to letting God define your family, defining your life, and being that one. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your goodness. I thank you so much for how our stories are all going somewhere. Many times we don't see it. A time like this where we kind of got the way life defined and we want just our way of doing family, of doing life. Many times it's that we are so in over our head. But Father, you are our Father. And I pray that everybody here would do something to care for the orphan, to be the hands and feet of you, to be the physical representation that shows orphans that you care. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.